Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Acts 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul, in his farewell address to the elders at Ephesus, says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Notice the imperative, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now turn to 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Again, he says, take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. Notice three areas in which the minister is to pay attention. Take heed to thyself. First, he's to guard himself. Take heed to the flock. He's to guard the church. There's the personal side. There's the people side of ministry. And then he's to take heed to the doctrine. There is the academic side of ministry. Now, we believe that the church is a pastoral not a redemptive institution. You may know that most professing Christians believe that the church functions as a mediator of saving grace. That is, that there is no salvation outside the church. Many people believe that the church helps the Lord populate heaven, either through the word or the sacrament, that the church is the means of grace. It's a redemptive institution. But primitive Baptists insist that a biblical doctrine of the church is one that defines the church in pastoral, not redemptive terms. That is to say, the church exists to minister to God's people who are in this world, not to help the Lord populate heaven. The church is a pastoral, not a redemptive institution. I hope that's clear. And in this pastoral or shepherding role, The great shepherd has arranged for under-shepherds to tend his sheep who are in this world. Our text for this study has been Jeremiah 3.15. I will give you pastors according to my heart, saith the Lord, who shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And as we think about the gift of shepherds to tend his sheep in this world, I'm reminded of a delightful section in John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory in which he describes the journey of Christian, that's his main character, from the city of destruction, that's where he started out, to the celestial city, and he's on pilgrimage. And by the way, that's where we are today. We're on pilgrimage to the celestial city. And on the course of his journey, he encounters many different difficulties and trials and blessings. And that's so typical of our lives, isn't it? In the pilgrim character of the Christian life, as we've journeyed through this world, I'm sure each of you have met with the slew of despond. And some of you have had to climb the hill difficulty. And some of you have had to do battle against Apollyon and Abaddon, the enemy of our souls. 
And some of you have also experienced the house beautiful and the blessing of faithful and hopeful to journey with you. Well, one of the stories in Pilgrim's Progress, and again, he's talking in allegorical terms, Christian and hopeful have been in Doubting Castle. I wonder if you've ever been there. At the feet of a giant named Despair. And they're about to die. But Christian remembers a key in his breast pocket called Promise. And he takes the key out of his bosom and he tries it and it unlocks first one door, then another in Doubting Castle. This is wonderful imagery. I hope you can follow it. And they find themselves escaped from the clutches of giant despair back on the king's highway on their way to the celestial city. And after that episode in Doubting Castle, Christian and Hopeful then come to the delectable mountains where they encounter four shepherds. I want to read just a portion about this. They went then till they came to the delectable mountains. Now, by the way, the delectable mountains are not far from the celestial city. What's the celestial city? It's heaven. And the delectable mountains are the closest they've been yet on their pilgrim journey. And I suggest for consideration that in Bunyan's mind, the delectable mountains represent the pastoral role of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's here to serve and to minister to God's people. And isn't the church depicted in the Old Testament as the mountain of the Lord's house? Isaiah 2.2, in that day, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. I love the fact that the church is pictured in an elevated position. Let us go up to the house of the Lord. You know, most of the time I am in the doldrums. Here's a technical theological word. I'm in the molly grubs of this world. Are you ever there? I'm like the hymn writer says, why is my going so staid and slow? But you know how wonderful it is to be able to rise above the vain and transitory things of this world from time to time and to go up into the delectable mountains. God said to John on Patmos Island, come up hither. And I will show thee things that must be hereafter. And the interesting thing is that when Christian and Hopeful visit the delectable mountains, these shepherds have a special glass, we might call it a telescope, in which they can look and see the gates of the celestial city. And I wonder if when you have come to the house of God and you have been blessed to enjoy the mountaintop experience of the gospel church, if you've ever been able to look over yonder and see the gates of the heavenly city. So think of this imagery. Then they came to the delectable mountains, which mountains, says Bunyan, belong to the Lord of that hill of whom we've spoken before. So they went up to the mountains to behold the gardens and orchards, the vineyards and fountains of waters, where they also drank and washed themselves, and they did freely eat of the vineyards. Now there were on the tops of these mountains shepherds, feeding their flocks. This is an interesting image. They meet shepherds, and they stood by the highway side. Now, by the way, the shepherds are named knowledge and experience and watchful and sincere. The pilgrims, therefore, went to the shepherds, and leaning upon their staff, as is common with weary pilgrims, they asked, 
whose delectable mountains are these and whose be the sheep that feed upon them? The shepherds said, these mountains are Emmanuel's land and they are within sight of his city and the sheep also are his and he laid down his life for them. Christian said, is this the way to the celestial city? The shepherds, you are just in your way. Christian, how far is it hither? Shepherds, too far for any but those that shall get thither indeed. In other words, the only people that are going to get there are the ones God chose to be there. You see Bunyan's doctrine of election here. Christian, is the way safe or dangerous? Shepherds, safe for those for whom it is to be safe, but transgressors shall fall therein. Christian, is there in this place any relief for pilgrims that are weary and faint in the way? And I wonder if you can identify with that. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Brother Mike, my heart is heavy, my mind is weary, I'm tired, I'm exhausted with the struggles of life. Is there any relief in this world for pilgrims that are weary and faint in the way the shepherds say, the Lord of these mountains hath given us a charge not to be forgetful to entertain strangers, therefore the good of this place is even before you. Now notice the role of the shepherds. The role of the shepherds is to tell weary pilgrims that there is rest and refreshment to be found in the delectable mountains, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about the names of these shepherds today. Knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. Now, in our study of shepherding the flock, we've learned that a shepherd does basically three things. He leads the flock. He goes out before them, and they follow him. And leadership is by example. In other words, the sheep are going to imitate the shepherd. If he goes in this path, they're going to follow him. And that's why it's so important that ministers live the gospel that they preach. And secondly, a shepherd is a guardian, or he protects the flock. And that's what we'll talk about today. And thirdly, he feeds and nourishes the flock. Now I want you to notice, in terms of this idea of guarding the flock, the minister must first guard himself. If he's going to take care of the flock, he must take heed to himself. In the two verses we took as a text this morning, you'll notice that one thought is repeated in both. Take heed to thyself. You saw it in Acts 20, 28. You see it in 1 Timothy 4, 16. Take heed to thyself and to the flock. Take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. It's important for a minister to know the doctrine. It's important for a minister to study the word of God. But you know, before he can take heed to the doctrine, before he can take heed to ministering to the people, he needs to first keep his own heart in order. Take heed to thyself. John R.W. Stott said, only if pastors first guard themselves will they then be able to guard the sheep. Only if pastors first tend their own spiritual life will they be able to tend to the flock of God? If you've ever flown on an aircraft, you've probably heard the steward or the stewardess say at the beginning of the flight, in the event of the loss of cabin pressure, an oxygen mask will drop from the overhead compartment above you. And if you're traveling with a small child or someone who's incapacitated, they will say, First, affix the mask to your own face, and then to the face of the child. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, that's not very Christian. You're supposed to esteem others better than yourself. 
You take care of them before you take care of yourself. But you see, there's logic. There is wonderful logic behind it because if the caregiver is incapacitated, then the one who's more vulnerable is in danger. So first, take care of yourself if you're going to take care of others. That's really what Paul is saying to Timothy, the young preacher. Take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. And he's saying to the elders at Ephesus, take heed to yourself. You see, one of these shepherds was named Watchful. Vigilance. And before we can take heed or pay attention to or watch over others, we have to first make sure that our own hearts are right. Our own lives are pleasing to God. A minister's public usefulness will never rise above the level of his private godliness and devotion. And that's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. If a man is going to pray to God, let him enter into his closet and close the door. And the God who sees in secret will reward you openly. He's saying that if you want to be useful openly, publicly, on a wider scale, it needs to start at a very genuine and personal level. There needs to be integrity in the life of the minister. You know what integrity is? It's being the same person in private that you profess to be in public. When no one is there to see or to applaud or to encourage you, it's being for real. It's being true to God in your own heart. And my friends, may I say integrity is in short supply in a political world like we live in today where everybody is looking for an advantage over somebody else. People who are for real on the inside, who aren't just flashy, put on a good show in public, but they are the same people in private that they appear to be and profess to be in public. I want to be that kind of person, don't you? I want to be a man of integrity. And that's what God looks for in his shepherds. Interestingly, you may remember that in the 78th Psalm, when he talks about he took David from the sheepfold and brought him to feed or to shepherd Jacob, his people, it says, so he fed them, Psalm 78, 72, so he fed them in the integrity of his heart and with the skillfulness of his hands. Now, it's wonderful to have talent. David was talented. He had skillful hands. And how wonderful it is when a minister can really preach. You say, oh, that man is gifted. He can weave a sentence together. He can tell a story. He can communicate. He's just very gifted. But you know what matters as much as skillful hands is a heart of integrity. David fed them. He shepherded the sheep with the integrity of his heart. He did the same thing for the nation as king that he had done for that little flock as a boy. He shepherded the nation with a heart of integrity. Indeed, the most important thing about the gospel shepherd is the cultivation of his own spiritual life. For his public usefulness will never be greater than his private walk with God. I think we see that thought in 2 Timothy 2.6 when Paul says the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. In other words, the minister that is going to feed God's people needs to himself believe the things that he's preaching. They need to be real to him. What I'm saying is the pastorate is not just a career or a job. It should be the person's very life. It should be the heart and soul of who he is because 
he himself is a recipient of divine grace. I think of that passage in Song of Solomon when the Shulamite said that my brothers and sisters made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. She says, they've given me their chores to do. You talk about family bullying, here it is in action. My brothers and sisters have uh, told me that uh, you're going to do my chores or I'll tell mama what you did. So she says, they made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. In other words, I've neglected to take care of myself while I've been busy doing all of the chores around me. And how many people, my friends, especially in positions of gospel leadership, forget to tend their own hearts because they're so busy serving the Lord? You know, we could get the Martha spirit, and I admire Martha in many respects, but she was cumbered with much serving. She was full of busyness. You know, a person can easily in their mind justify working feverishly for the Lord, for devotional communion with the Lord. In other words, what I'm saying is it takes more than just doing things in the service of the Lord. We've got to take the time to instruct our own minds, feed our own souls, gather the strength that we need in order to put the oxygen mask on others. The shepherd must first take heed to himself before he takes heed to the flock and before he takes heed to the doctrine. Now, there are four main areas in which a pastor must guard himself. First, his head. Remember the names of the shepherds. The first shepherd was named Knowledge. And you want a preacher who knows the truth, who knows the word, who studies the word. Knowledge is vital. The pastor must take heed or pay attention to his head. Secondly, experience. He must pay attention to his heart, his devotional walk with God, his personal growth in grace. And then sincere was the other shepherd. Knowledge, experience, watchful and sincere. We're just sort of looking at the traits that he ascribes to these shepherds on the delectable mountains this morning as a grid, if you please, or a template for traits that a pastor, a gospel shepherd is to have. He must have knowledge. He must take heed to know the truth, to study the truth, to have a teachable spirit, experience. He must be somebody who personally walks with God, and he must be sincere. And I think we could say a couple of things come under that category. He must be a man of integrity in his morals. Moral integrity is vital. You may remember last time we talked about this, I made the comment about a, an old preacher when I was growing up that said God's people love good food, but they like it on a clean plate. Well, God's people love good preaching, but they like that preaching to be served from a shepherd who is sincere. And by the way, the word sincere in the Bible means unalloyed or pure as judged by sunlight. You know, Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Paul told Timothy that the preacher is to be somebody who can have a good conscience and sincerity in the truth. That is, what he's saying is you need to be real through and through. Not just to put on, not just a performance. A sermon is more than a performance. 
The preacher's up here to share what he's not only learned, but internalized with God's people from a life that is not perfect. Now, if perfection is the criteria for serving others in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know of anybody who would qualify. I sure wouldn't. None of us is sinless and flawless. But you see, if a man's going to preach about grace, if he's going to preach about the Lord's love, if he's going to preach about God's power to transform lives, if he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role as our teacher and our guide in this life, you want him to do so in a way that you feel that he has experienced that as well as studied it. He knows more than just the abstract formulas. But you say, there's something real about this. Now, I don't know how to put that on. I, I can't just pretend and say, now, maybe I could learn how to cry. I'd need to go to acting school to do it, I suppose. And just turn on the emotion and try to convince you that I feel it. But may I say that as you get to know those who minister to you over time, you learn whether they are sincere or not. Integrity in our morals, integrity in our motives, integrity in our attitudes, you see, that's sincere. So let's talk about these three. Knowledge. The pastor must know the truth and study the Word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we took our text in verse 16, notice the 13th verse just above that. Paul says to the young preacher Timothy, Till I come... Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. That is, it was recognized by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Even when you were ordained, he says, you were charged. Others encouraged you to be faithful to the Lord. They talked about how they expected God to use you. He says that gift that God gave you and was recognized by the church and by the way, that's what an ordination service is. When a minister is set aside to be ordained and a presbytery lays hands on him and the church has called for his ordination, they've been fed, they've been encouraged by his ministry, and now they've asked the other ministers to come and see if they agree with them. And if he's a judged faithful in life and sound in doctrine, then they will endorse him and publicly set him aside for ministry. All of that proceeding, my friends, is intended to show that God has touched this man's life. And Paul says to Timothy, don't neglect that gift that is in thee. Instead, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now, a preacher needs to be a reader. I know I run into people all the time that say, I don't read. And by the way, reading is becoming a lost art in our world, right? As uh, more and more video images, you know, visual images or technology has blossomed to the point that people are watch. It's easier to watch because you don't have to think as much. But God gave us his truth in a book, not in a movie, not in a dramatic play. It's a propositional truth. God revealed himself in holy scripture. The word scripture means uh, something that's written down. And we need to read the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, give thyself to reading. Give thyself to reading. Now, probably in that verse, he has reference to the public reading of the Word of God. And that's appropriate. 
Reading God's Word is always appropriate in the church when it assembles. And by the way, a lot of people don't do enough reading privately, so we do need to take some time to read from God's Word when we get together. Do you know that's really the only time I'm speaking without error? (laughs) That I'm speaking by divine inspiration? Somebody says that was an inspired sermon, not in the technical sense of the term. I've never had God completely give me a sermon, you know. I don't think any man has. I've known folks who claimed that God funneled it in, but I wouldn't blame him for what I heard. (laughs) The idea that I don't have to study, I don't have to really meditate in advance, I don't have to do any preparation. Brother Sonny Powell used to say, if a preacher doesn't prepare, he will spend his time repairing his sermons. I'd rather prepare than to have to repair. It is important, my friends, when you're going to try to serve a meal, to look at the recipe book and to see how much of the spices is to be added, how long is it is to be cooked. You see, a preacher needs to study, needs to meditate. He needs to think in advance. If he's going to share something with God's people, he needs to put forth the effort. And by the way, if he doesn't, how can we expect God's people to put forth any effort in serving the Lord if you know that the preacher's just sort of winging it when he gets up there? Now, what I'm saying is knowledge is vital and essential. Again, he says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Titus 2.7, he says, showing thyself a pattern in doctrine, showing uncorruptness. In other words, you be a man that knows the truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study. Paul tells the young preacher, study to show thyself approved unto God. Now that's the audience for whom we play. We're seeking to please him. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Oh, how terrible it is to be embarrassed when called upon to speak before the Lord's people, to have to say, brethren, I I really don't know what to say. Now, we're to study. Only God can give the power. We know that. We need the Holy Spirit as well as the study of the minister. We know that we rely upon him. But you know, if a minister is a praying man, if he's saying, Lord, give me the message that the people need, and then, Lord, open your word to my understanding, and Lord, show me how to say it, and help me to know when to preach this sermon, and is it your will, Lord, and Lord, give me what the people need. He's the great shepherd. He knows what is really needed in a congregation. And if a man is preaching the whole counsel of God, may I suggest over the course of his ministry, God's people are going to be fed with doctrine, with experience, with practice, everything that they need to know. They're going to get a full diet. Some people Say, I just eat this. This is the only thing that I like to eat. I love hamburgers. Well, you're getting good protein, no doubt, from that, but you're probably missing your vegetables or missing some of the other food groups that are necessary. You say, well, I just like pizza. And pizza is its own full meal. It has all the food groups in it, you know. Well, maybe that's the case. But I'll tell you, if a man is preaching the whole counsel of God, if he's preaching about what God has done for us, as well as what we are to do in response to His grace. If He's preaching about the church, if He's preaching about the lives of God's people, if He's preaching about marriage, if He's preaching about parenting, if He's preaching about our role as citizens in our community, if He's preaching about how we're to view money, 
how we're to pray, how we're to trust God in the face of our problems and difficulties in life. You see, if he's preaching the word, he's going to deliver a full gospel. And that's going to make well-rounded, healthy saints, just like a parent that makes sure that the child gets vegetables as well as proteins, as well as breads, as well as milks. You see, the parent that's giving a balanced diet to their children, the child is going to be more healthy. And that's what a shepherd should think about. As he's tending a flock of sheep, he doesn't want to just give them, uh, you know, the sweetest grass. He wants them to have a balance. He wants them to have something that will build muscle as well as something that will satisfy the palate. The sheep say, oh, this is delicious. But you know, this particular food may not be as tasty, but it's more important nutritionally speaking. Here's the point. In a church family, my beloved, the Lord has given pastors and he's given them the resources necessary to feed the church. And that's why the pastor must first devote himself to study, to show himself approved unto God. Andrew Bonar said, with great solemnity, what an old friend told him at the beginning of his ministry, the man remarked, remember, it is said by old and experienced men that very few men and very few ministers keep up to the end the edge that was on their spirit at the first. I think that's true. It's so easy after you've gone a while into serving the Lord's people to start relying on past studies. To just say, well, I think I've done enough of the legwork, now I'm just going to coast from here on out. And God's people can tell when that's the case, I suggest for consideration. So it's important for a minister to keep praying, keep reading, keep studying the Word. There are depths to be plumbed in this book, my friends, that I've not yet touched in 40 plus years of gospel ministry. I have to tell you that our God is more incomprehensible than I have discovered already. I, I can't possibly span the heights or, again, fathom the depths or explore the farthest reaches of the infinity of God's nature. He is great and His greatness is unsearchable, said the psalmist in the 145th Psalm. Indeed, my beloved, we've got a never-ending story to tell. <laughs> You say, well, I think I've mastered theology. I'm an expert. I'm a doctor of divinity. You know, that's one reason old Baptists have avoided those flattering titles because uh, there's none of us who is really even in the final analysis any more than a Bible student. None of us are scholars. Anytime somebody professes to be a scholar, it gives me just a little pause as to how much I swallow what this person says. You see, the fact is nobody is that advanced. There's more land to be possessed, in other words. Knowledge is vital. Not only does a minister need to study, may I say he needs to maintain a teachable spirit. You know, when I was young, I listened to my fathers in the ministry, had a number of good preachers around me. My dad was a wonderful mentor, had other men who tutored me, but, you know, they didn't know necessarily that they were training me, but I was looking up to them, watching them. I watched not only how they studied and how they thought, but I tried to learn from their pulpit mannerisms. You know, a minister should never quit trying to improve the way that he delivers messages, his delivery. The study of homiletics or pulpit presentation 
is not something that we put a lot of emphasis on. I had a friend tell me this week, talking about primitive Baptist ministers and the content, the substantive content of their sermons, but he said, you know, they're really a blue-collar ministry. I thought that was an interesting uh, way to describe them. They're not the sophisticated clerics who are decorated and, you know, wear their robes. They're basically a working class, a blue-collar kind of ministry that primitive Baptist preachers are. I I like that idea. But that doesn't mean, my friends, that they're to be shoddy in their pulpit workmanship. It doesn't mean that mediocrity is acceptable. You know, mediocrity is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? The fruit of the Spirit are these love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness. And I think a number of my friends in the ministry over the years have thought that because there is no formal kind of educational and training system set up for primitive Baptist ministers outside of the local church, and by the way, that's biblical, We believe in the father-son mentorship. You know, it's a tutelage kind of perspective where a more experienced minister trains a younger minister like Paul trained Timothy. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That's God's seminary, the local church. But just because we don't have formal seminary training does not mean that it's acceptable for us to cut corners, to refuse to study, And to reach the point that we say, I don't listen to anybody but myself. You know, there's an old saying by Sir Joshua Reynolds that he made to the students of the Royal Academy of Arts. He said, he who resolves never to ransack any mind but his own will soon be reduced to the poorest of all imitations. He'll be obliged to imitate himself. There are some people who never listen to other preachers who think that no other preacher could teach me. I have to tell you, dear friends, I am constantly learning, listening to preachers. In fact, I think I've told you before that I listen to at least a dozen sermons each week, sometimes as many as 15. Now, a few years ago, I was listening to even more than that. I was listening to about eight or 10 a day. And you'd wonder, you say, Brother Mike, that's surprising. I would think you'd be more spiritually minded at this point if you listen to that much preaching. And I should be farther down the road of sanctification, I grant you. But uh, I listen to a lot of sermons. And I love it. I enjoy it. You may not like it as much as I do. But um, I'm constantly trying to learn, trying to glean. I'll glean thoughts from this brother, that brother. I love to listen to Old Baptist. I'll listen to a, a variety of ministers that are in the same ballpark with my theological convictions, but I think it's important that a preacher maintain a teachable spirit, else we'll be imitators of ourselves. And that's a poor person to imitate, to imitate myself. You say, Brother Mike, if you've been studying this hard and trying to learn from others, you haven't made a lot of progress. Well, some of us are slower studies than others. It takes a little more to get through to me, but I'm trying. I want to be the best preacher I could possibly be because my Lord deserves it. I want to present a substantive meal. You know, a cook wants to do the best she can do or he can do and present a good meal, and I do too. Knowledge is important, but you know, the second shepherd that Bunyan mentioned on the Delectable Mountains was experience. And it's not enough that a pastor know the truth, he must 
have an experience of the message he proclaims. I think we see that thought in 1 Timothy 4.12 when Paul says to Timothy, this is the context of our text this morning, he says that you're to be an example of believers in faith. Faith. Not just in your conversation, in your words, in your spirit, but in faith. That means the gospel you proclaim should be real to you personally. And there are three areas here. A preacher needs to prioritize personal devotion. To the young preacher Timothy, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, exercise yourself to godliness. Timothy, go to the gym and be more devout. He's talking about personal piety. Timothy, you need to be a Christian first and foremost. You know, when somebody asks me to identify myself, I hope that the first thing in my mind isn't that I'm a preacher. I hope the first thing is I'm a child of God and a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you know when the day comes that my voice fails and my mind is not sharp and I can't really maintain a pulpit presence anymore, my relationship to the Lord will continue. That's what matters most in any of our lives. Not what we do, but who we are in terms of our relationship to God. Paul said, for to me to live is to preach. Is that what he said? For to me to live is to baptize. For to me to live is to pastor a large church. No, for to me to live is Jesus Christ. And Christ is my life, my friends. And that will be true when I'm on my deathbed. May it be true for you and me right now. Warren Wiersbe said, I am deathly afraid of personal spiritual deterioration. Whew. Listen to this. Of having a name that I'm alive when I'm really dead. And the fact that I'm involved in ministry is no protection. Even ministry can create opportunities for the enemy to work. The sobering words of George MacDonald arrest me. A man may sink by such slow degrees that long after he's a devil, he may go on being a good churchman or a good dissenter and think himself a good Christian. My friends, I am too afraid of personal spiritual deterioration or decline. That's why a minister's walk with God is the priority in his life. You know, it was a shepherd who said, the Lord is my shepherd. And as a shepherd of the flock, may God help me to remember I need a shepherd too, and I need to live closely to him. And then when we talk about experience, a minister needs to personally grow in grace. In our text, 1 Timothy 4 again, verse 15, Paul says, Give thyself wholly to these things that thy profiting may appear unto all. And I was interested early on in my ministry to learn that that word profiting is prokope in the Greek. and It means pioneer advance. Now, you know what a pioneer is, don't you? Daniel Boone was an American pioneer. He blazed the trail, the wilderness trail through the Appalachian Mountains, you know, to connect the eastern seaboard to the rest of the country, a pioneer. Pioneers went west, you know, on the Oregon Trail and to settle the Midwest and the far west in California and so forth because of the American pioneer. The word profiting or pioneer advance means to cut through, to go forward. You can just see fellow with a machete taking away the brush so that a, a path is formed. He says, as a preacher, give yourself wholly to your ministry so that your personal growth and pioneer advance will be apparent, may appear to all. 
And what Paul is saying in this verse is that others will notice Timothy's spiritual growth and will be spurred to greater godliness by his example. Do you know I've never known a church that was growing spiritually whose pastor had grown stagnant and was not growing himself? I've never known a church who was making progress whose pastor was not also setting the pace by growing himself. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be forging into heresy. You know, somebody says, you've never heard this before, but I'm... No, when a preacher is bringing new truth to you that you've never heard before, be careful, be cautious. You see, we want men to sound that old gospel trumpet, right? We want to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, you say, I've never heard a sermon from Obadiah. But our pastor preached one. Well, he's growing, apparently, and you're growing by being exposed to more of the Word of God. You see that? Never assume that you've learned all that you need to learn. That's true for preacher and pew alike, people alike. My beloved, we all could grow. So a pastor must prioritize experience and then personal faith in God in times of trial and affliction. When he says, be an example of believers in faith, he means that the preacher should himself trust God to help him through the trials and difficulties of his life. Do you know one reason I think God allows his ministers to go through so many trials and difficulties? And by the way, preachers aren't exempt. I've had financial troubles. I've had marriage problems. I've had problems with raising kids, teenagers. I've had uh, heartaches. I've had interpersonal conflicts. I've had personal failures and difficulties I've dealt with. I've had dark moments when I thought that I was at the very end of my usefulness or that God was done with me. And my beloved, I've been in the deep, dark valley, just like some of you have. I've had loved ones struggling with their health, a face to death, just like you. You know why preachers are allowed to go through that? You say, you're a preacher. You'd think you wouldn't have any problems. You're not living in the real world. You're living in the ivory towers of academia. No, dear friends, we're just like you. Shepherds are sheep too. And you know why that God allows His ministers to go through that? So that we can comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1.3 So that we can take how the Lord's helped us and pass it on to God's people. So many times the words of Job 4 verses 3 through 5 have challenged me. Would you listen to this? Eliphaz the Temanite said to Job, Behold, thou hast instructed many. I've thought of this about myself. Okay, I've been trying to teach God's word. He tells Job, you've instructed many. And thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling. And thou hast strengthened the feeble knees, but now it is come upon thee, and thou fainest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Eliphaz says, Job, you've been a minister to the hurting, but now when you're the one hurting, your faith has faltered. Do you know that verse arrested John Newton as he struggled with self-pity and despair at the bedside of his invalid wife? John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. But Newton thought about that passage, then he thought to himself, you know, I've preached that God is faithful, that faith must take hold of His promise in the time of trouble, and now it's time to prove in my own life 
that God is able to sustain those who put their trust in Him. Newton pulled himself together and proceeded to care for his invalid wife and maintain his rigorous schedule of pastoring and preaching, trusting in God. In fact, he preached on the day that she died. He preached to his church. And even subsequently, a week or two later, preached his own wife's funeral. He was a living example to others of what faith in God looks like. Experience. Shepherds need knowledge. Shepherds need real life experience. And they need sincerity or integrity. And when we return next time to talk about watchful and sincere and move forward into talking about how the minister is to take heed not only to himself, but to the doctrine and to the flock, to the church. He's to be a protector of the people of God, protector of the truth, a guardian of the church. As we move forward to talk about that, we'll speak a little bit in the beginning, God willing, about the minister's moral purity and his integrity of motive and talk about his attitude a little bit and then move forward in terms of this truth that the shepherd is the guardian of God's people. Have you ever been to the delectable mountains, drank of its fountains and tasted of its fruits and seen through the glass of divine revelation the gates of the celestial city? My friends, weary pilgrims can find rest and refreshment here. And if you found any rest for your soul in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his grace, it's a good place for you to stay. It's good for us to be here. Let's just build some tabernacles on this mountain. Have you built your tabernacle? Have you been baptized? Have you united with the church? Today's a good day to do that as we stand to sing an appropriate hymn.